right, amen. Praise the Lord. Let's uh, open our Bibles to Gospel of John chapter 7. have a good portion of the uh, chapter that we're going to read through today. John chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews, the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about, about it that it, its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his, his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there, is much, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, began teaching. The Jews, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That is the word of the Lord. Amen. So as I, uh, as I have been doing in the last several weeks, I want to start off this sermon with a, a couple of questions. Uh, question number one is, have you ever been called a hypocrite? Um, that seems to be something that Christians are called very often nowadays. Uh, but question number two is, have you ever been one? And I think that depends on, on, on what your definition of a hypocrite is. But the true definition of what a hypocrite, a hypocrite is, it, it comes from the Greek, and basically it means an actor or a pretender someone who is pretending to be something. So, in essence, in order for you to be called a hypocrite and for it to be true, you have to be a non-Christian who is acting like a Christian because that's what a, a hypocrite is. It's someone who is only pretending to be a Christian. Now, I think people today get confused with Christians sinning versus Christians being hypocrites. 
Because I, I think that's, that's when we are called hypocrites is any time we sin, then therefore people say, ah, you see, you're a hypocrite. But the fact is, is that we are not hypocrites. We, we have just sinned. We do not say that we are without sin. In fact, we say that's why we need Christ. So regardless of all that, though, we must know and we must be mindful of two things. We must be mindful, number one, of our life. And when I say life, I mean, you know, how we live. Uh, people are watching. And even though maybe they're not judging rightly, we still, much, we still must uh, watch our life. And then the second thing is we must, we must uh, watch our doctrine closely. I think those two things are very important in our lives. We must watch our everyday life, and then we also must watch our doctrine. Today we're going to learn the importance of uh, those two things through what Jesus says in our passage. Here Jesus is teaching a group of people who are truly hypocrites. They truly are. They define the word. They, they meet the definition. And um, there's, there's a lot that we can learn here, uh, that we can learn here from what Jesus teaches them and tells them. The fact is, and here's a sermon summary for those of you who are taking notes, but the fact is, is that we must seek to bring God glory by what we learn, and what we learn goes along with what we teach, and then also we must seek to bring God glory by what we do. Uh, those two things are vital to our Christian walk, and that's exactly what is being discussed here in this passage. Before I get down to um, the two uh, points, I, I, I want to give some context to our, our, our sermon today and to our passage today, because there's a lot to understand before we get to Jesus' teaching. Uh, first of all, in verse 1, it says that after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. So after this, is talking about basically after him giving his, uh, his, his bread of life discourse uh, to all those who were around at the temple of Capernaum, and that's at the end of chapter 6. And there's about a six-month period between the end of chapter 6 and then all, when chapter 7 uh, begins. And during that time, he remained in the region of Galilee, which was, if you're looking at Jerusalem, Jerusalem is, uh, Judea is, is further down south. There, there's a region of Judea, and then the region of Galilee was further up north. Judea, that's where Jerusalem was, and Capernaum, that's where um, it was in the region of Galilee. So he remained in that region because the Bible says that the Jews were seeking to kill him. And it specifically says that in the area of Judea, where Jerusalem was, that's where people were seeking to kill him. Now, that, was, that would be a problem for a, a true Jew, because a, a Jew had to go back to Jerusalem several times a year. And this was one of the times where he had to go back as, as a Jew to celebrate uh, this feast. So going back to Judea openly would mean that those who were seeking to kill him would catch him. And, uh, and, and they would try to take his life. So uh, that would be putting him at risk with, uh, of being killed by the Jewish officials. Then we see verses 2 through 5. And in verses 2 through 5, uh, we learn that there is a feast. It's called the Feast of the Booths, also referred to as the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now this feast... Uh, was at hand, as I said, in Jerusalem. And then there's this conversation between uh, him and his brothers. Uh, but before I get to that conversation between him and his brothers, I, I want to talk to you about the Feast of Booths and what that was. 
Um, this was a feast that began around September and October of the year. And this feast lasted seven days. And it was one of the favorite feasts of, of the people of that day. It celebrated two things. Number one, it was, at, it was time for the harvest. So there was a lot of celebrating going on. It was a, a, a feast to commemorate the harvest and uh, the, the plenty of God's blessings. Second of all, it also commemorated the provisions that God had supplied for uh, his people in the Old Testament as they wandered in the wilderness. Uh, those two things were um, highlighted within this feast. And the reason why it was called the Feast of Booths is because people who uh, journey there and even people who lived in that area, what they would do is that they would live in a, in a booth for those seven days. They would uh, build these temporary booths and they would stay in there to commemorate the, the people, the Israelites who traveled in the desert. Um, they didn't have a home, but they traveled in the desert in, in makeshift tents and, and booths, uh, you know, every single day. So again, that's what this was commemorating. So everyone who traveled there, they, they made their own little uh, booth or little hut and they stayed in that for seven days. Um, Offerings were made every single day of, of the feast. There was food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, and even drink offerings. And we're going to see later on in, um, in, in John, as Jesus speaks in chapters uh, 7 and 8, some of the things he said, actually, he's referring to the celebration, uh, this celebration here in, in, in this feast. Uh, some of the examples and illustrations he uses with food and drink. Now, during this time, it was during this time that Jesus' brothers came to him. And we see in our passage in verses 2 through 5 that they came to him and they were trying to convince him to attend the feast. And it seems like when they talked to him, it was uh, them trying to convince him to attend the feast so that he could launch his public ministry. Uh, look at verse 2, or actually verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here. And go to Judea. So that means leave Galilee and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. Um, so the Feast of Booths would have been the perfect launching pad to do such a thing, as his brothers were. Uh, convincing, trying to convince him to, to, to go and do. It would have been a, a perfect place to launch a, a public ministry because this was one of the more popular feasts of the Jews, so it was very heavily attended. But the advice that Jesus' brothers gave him, it seemed to be sound, but we learn in verse 5, as I read to you, that not even his brothers were believers at this point. Uh, it says that they didn't believe in him. That means that they hadn't come to saving faith. That means that they hadn't trusted in Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. So I think that's an important point to stop and just talk about for a second. Imagine that. These are his, his blood brothers who, have, who live with him day in, day out. And uh, we, what we know about Christ is that he was completely sinless. And, and, and he lived with his brothers day in, day out. For, for the most part. I mean, he traveled a lot, but they knew, they knew him better than anybody else. And uh, not even they believed in him as Lord and Savior. And it really goes back to what John says in, uh, or what Jesus says in, in chapter 6 of this gospel, mainly uh, verse 44, that 
no one comes to me unless the Father draws him in. And there's further proof for us there that um, even his brothers who live with him this whole time, they saw his perfection, they saw his divinity, they saw his godliness, they saw all that Jesus did, and that wasn't enough for them to come to saving faith. Um, it just wasn't their time yet. God had not drawn, uh, had, had not, had not drawn them in at, at that point. But when you read that, when you read that his brothers were not believers, that seems to put what they said to Jesus in the negative tense. And what I mean by that is that instead of going and trying to help Jesus and saying, well, you know, you should go to Judea, you should uh, go and launch your ministry because there's going to be a lot of people there. And brother, there's so much opportunity for you. We care so much about you. We think that's what you should do. But at this point, there were unbelievers. So instead of doing it that way in the positive tense, it seems more likely that they came in the negative tense, uh, meaning that they were probably trying to ridicule or tease him instead of trying to give him this sound advice. Um, I, let me read this back to you again, but let me read it back to you sarcastically. The best that I can do is I look at verses 3 through 4. And, and believe me, I have been gifted very well with the gift of sarcasm. So I'll try my best. But So it says here in verse 3, his brothers said to him, leave here. It's like they come to Jesus and they say, you know what? Why don't you just get out of here and go to Judea so that your disciples, you know, all these people that, that follow you. And just think about this. Jesus just lost a lot of disciples. So, they, and, and they knew this. They knew that a lot of people walked away from him. So they come to him and it's just like, you know, why don't you leave here and go so that all your disciples may see the wonderful works that you are doing. It's like you think you're so good. Why don't you just go down to Judea, Judea show everybody what you're doing. And then verse four, and this is the reason why I say this in verse four, it says, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. It's like you say you're the savior of the world. Why don't you go to Judea and show yourself? What are you afraid of? Why don't you just go down there, show yourself, uh, show yourself to, for them, that was the world, show yourself to the world so that you may have people um, that follow you. So when you read it like that, it, it, it kind of, you know, it puts it in a different tense. And um, what they seem to be getting at is, why are you hiding if you are the savior of the world? Why don't you just go in public? But then we see Jesus respond to them in verses six through eight. This is what Jesus says. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Then he says this in verse 8, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come. And then after that, it says that he remained in Galilee. Now, Jesus tells them that it wasn't the father's timing. I think that's very important for us to really pick up on and, and, and to really think about. Because many times, you know, we're excited to do something and it feels like the right time, but we don't consider God's timing. And we know God is sovereign and we know things happen according to his will, but it's important for Christians to consider God's timing. And Jesus, uh, while his brothers are trying to get him to go to this feast, he stops and says, listen, it may sound like a great opportunity. It may sound like the perfect situation, but you know what? It's not my father's timing for me to go and do something like this. It's not my father's timing for me to go 
public. So Jesus' timetable was according to the Father's will. As Christians, that's what our timetable needs to be. And that means if, if our timetable is going to be according to the Father's will, that means we need to spend a lot of time in prayer. We need to spend a lot of time on our knees seeking the Father's will. And he says that he is not going to the feast right now, and he's not going to the feast under the conditions that his brothers are trying to, uh, trying to give him. That means he's not going to the feast uh, publicly. But then we see, and we don't know how much time has passed between verses 8, 9, and 10, but in verse 10 we see that Jesus does go to the feast, but he doesn't go to the feast in public. In fact, it says that he goes privately, not as his brothers demanded that he do. Now, people in the past have tried to use this verse to, to show that Jesus has sinned. And they say, you, you see, Jesus is not sinless. Even the Bible shows that he's not sinless because Jesus just lied to his brothers. He just lied to his brothers and he told them, no, you go to the feast, I'm not going, and then he went. So Jesus was being deceitful here. But the fact is, is that that's not, that's not what it, what's going on. Uh, the Greek is choppy here, but the fact is, is that it's just a matter of timing. When Jesus' brothers talked to him and said, you must go to the feast, he was, again, thinking about the Father's will. And Jesus said, it is not my time to go right now. It didn't mean that a minute or a day after, or two days after, that it wasn't his time. It's just when he was speaking to his brothers at that certain time, it wasn't his time to go. And it also wasn't his time to go in the way in which they wanted him to go publicly. So Jesus was saying, listen, I'm not going right now, and I'm not going publicly. And both those things, he didn't lie about, about either one of those things because both of those things were true. He didn't go when they wanted him to go, and he didn't go the way in which they wanted him to go. So you, that's, that, to me, that's a weak argument about Jesus lying. Uh, uh, I think it's easily debunked, and it's, it's a matter of timing. So Jesus went according to uh, God's will, and he went on the day in which God told him to go. So uh, as he goes to the feast, it's a good thing that he goes, uh, initially he goes in private, because when he gets there, uh, the, there, there's, there, there are things going on. Verse 11 tells us that the Jews were looking for him at the feast. So if he would have gone when his brother said to go, and if he would have gone in the way in which his brother said to go, he would have easily been caught. So the Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they were saying this, where is he? And then verse 12 tells us, and there was much muttering about him among the people. That, mean, that just basically means everybody was talking about him. But notice this, uh, some said that he was a good man, others said that he was leading the people astray. But look at this, look at the attitude of, of the whole crowd. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So it was just whispers and muttering, but no one was confident enough to speak openly about who Jesus was and who he was to them. Because even they feared what the Jews would do uh, to them. So, but it is here, it is, oh, excuse me. But in the middle of this feast, we see that Jesus... Um, discerns that it is the right time to go from private to public. It, it, the Bible just says in the middle of this feast, and it doesn't tell us why or anything, it just says that Jesus discerned that it was time. And so what he does is he goes into the temple in Jerusalem. If you want to be public, that is the place to go. 
He goes to the temple in Jerusalem, and he begins to teach there. He begins to teach there, and, and this is what's so awesome about it. Um, there was so much in this passage. In actuality, we could have kept on going to the rest of chapter 7, and the rest of chapter 7 talks about how they found out he was there, and then they come try to arrest him, but we just didn't have enough time to cover it all. But here uh, we see that in verse 14 that he goes public uh, with his ministry and, his, and, and just his presence there in Jerusalem at the time. And that was a big risk for him because, again, they were seeking to kill him. And we know they meant business because people were even afraid about talking about Jesus. That's how serious the Jewish officials were in, in capturing him and killing him. But while he is at the temple, it is here that Jesus delivers these wonderful truths about what true godly teaching is and what true godly discipleship is. And this is here, this is where we learn um, those two important truths that we must live by. We must be careful about what we learn and teach, and then we also must be careful about how we live our life. Uh, Let's look at, first of all, how to recognize godly teaching. That is covered in verses 15 through uh, 18. Jesus sits down and he begins, to, uh, he begins to teach the crowd. And as he is teaching the crowd, verse 15 uh, says that the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus is teaching the crowd and the crowd is in awe of his teaching. You see, many times in the Bible we read that the, the, the crowds were in awe of his miracles, but we also read that the, the crowds were in awe of his teachings. Yeah, his miracles were divinely inspired, but were, so were his teachings. And Jesus was so far, of course, ahead of his time. He was the word, and now we have the word teaching others. So everything that came out of his mouth was divine truth. And so people marveled at it. Uh, they, they stood in awe of it. And it was, it was completely amazing and it dumbfounded so many people because here was a carpenter's son teaching the way he was teaching. Now, I don't want us to misunderstand what's being said here in verse 15. When they marveled and said, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied, they don't mean that Jesus wasn't exposed to any kind of formal education. Because we can know that by number one, he knew how to read, and number two, uh, being a carpenter's son, he would have been exposed to formal teaching. So it wasn't that they were saying, wow, how can this man teach when he's never been taught at all? That's not exactly what they were saying. Instead, they marveled because he wasn't a disciple of anyone. That's what they were marveling at. That Jesus was not a disciple of any well-known religious leader. That's what they mean about this man has, uh, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Have you ever heard the term understudy? He has never been an understudy of anyone. They're saying, wow, how can he have this knowledge if no one has given him this knowledge to share with anybody else? They also marveled at the authority in which he taught. So not only you know, how learned he was, but the authority in which he taught, in which he taught because when he taught, he didn't quote other, uh, what other people said about the scriptures. Again, because 
He didn't study under anybody. So he didn't sit there and say, well, this is what this great thinker says, and this is what this great theologian says. He didn't say, he didn't do any of that. And he also didn't borrow knowledge from anybody else. What Jesus was speaking and what he was teaching, this was all original thought. And so it, it, it really blew them away that Jesus was able to teach the way he was able to teach. So much so that in other places of the gospel, they would say, isn't, wait a second, isn't this, uh, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't he the son of a carpenter? Like this, this should be the high priest's son doing this, in other words. But this is the son of the carpenter. How is it that he has this type of knowledge and authority with the scriptures? Well, we know why he has such knowledge and authority with the scriptures. is because he was God in the flesh. So the fact is, is that no one before or after has ever taught with the authority or the knowledge of Christ. No one. In fact, I think it's everyone um, in the theology world, so to speak, in the theology realm has, has a, 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 a common opinion that one of the, the greatest preachers of all time is Charles Spurgeon. And he is widely referred to as the Prince of Preachers. But the reason why he is called the Prince of Preachers is because Christ is the King of Preachers. He is the King of Knowledge. He is the King of Wisdom. He is the King of all things because all things come from him. And that's what these people were being exposed to whenever he taught. Amazing. I, it, it'd be wonderful to just, just I, know we, I know we can read what he says in, in, in our Bible, and we can trust that this is the word of God, but it would have been something just to sit there and physically see and hear his teaching. See, but they not only marveled at how Jesus taught, but they also marveled at how his teachings revealed truths from God. Verse 16. He says this in response to their, their, their questions. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. You see, that was what caused them to marvel. It's because what Jesus was teaching, he was teaching what the Father had given him. So he was revealing wonderful truths about God and from God. In comparison to the Jewish officials who focused on the law, Jesus' teachings were based on this. Number one, he praised the name and the works of God in his teaching. Everything went back to him. It didn't go back to a religious leader. It didn't go back to the, a, a tablet or a law that was established within uh, the, the land or the country or the nation. It was... It was he went back to the person and to the name of God who is worthy of all praise. And that's what he focused on. Also, when Jesus taught, the gospel was presented. And we know what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news. So when Jesus taught, there was good news that God was going to forgive those who trusted in Christ. Those are the wonderful truths that he taught. His teaching was not man-centered. A lot of the Jewish officials, their teaching was man-centered. It was just on 
meeting the requirements of the law. And if you meet the requirements of the law, then you will be considered a holy person. And Jesus, his teaching was you cannot meet the requirements of the law. That's why you need to trust in me. That's why you need to put all your faith in me. And if you do that, you will be saved. For Jesus in his teaching, it didn't start with man. Like so much, so many people think it does today. His teaching was God-centered. He taught that God was sovereign. God was holy. But also God was love. And God was mercy. He called out and spoke against sin in his teaching. And he did this with authority. And also, when he taught, he gave people hope of a better future with God. You see, these are all things that, as as good biblical teachers, that we should promote today. And these are things that we should talk about today. This is what your pastor and your teachers and, 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 and those who you put yourself under, this is what they should be talking about. This is what godly teaching is. It points us back to God and it gives him all the glory. That's what a healthy church bases its doctrine on. Now, Jesus' teaching carried out God's will. And he said that those who are concerned about God's will would actually recognize his teaching. Why? Because as we know, the Bible says that His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. So if Jesus was teaching what was what was given to him by the father and if that teaching was 100 percent divine. And it was pure and it was it was great. Then it was given to people what they needed if they believed in him. And it was also given to people what they needed if they did not believe in him. Either way was doing its work in their lives see when we as his sheep hear his voice we do follow him we recognize his voice and we do follow him and we know that is the voice of the savior and the way in which we follow him is the way is is the way of the savior i liken it to uh growing up growing up and and uh growing up in, in in my mother's house and i can recognize even though she's been gone for all these years, 16 years, um, I can recognize her cooking in an instant. Anything that she's ever made, ever made, even now today, as I think about the, some of the things that she's, that she's cooked in the past, I can taste it right now. I can taste it. I can smell it. Memories come back to me, and I just know, like, that's my mother's cooking. Not only that, but even being married to my wife for all these years now, I, I, can, I can smell it, I can taste it, I, I know how her, tastings, her, her cooking is going to taste. I know everything about it. Not only that, but also my mother-in-law's cooking. And now I'm starting to learn everybody in the church because every single month, every single month we, have, uh, we, we eat together and we have fellowship with one another. The thing though is, is that that's extremely personal and, and even though she, my mother is gone, I can still remember it. Because that was her cooking. With my wife, that's her cooking. When I hear the pure word of God, I know it. You know why? Because that's my Savior's preaching. That's my Savior's, those are my Savior's words. And they are good for me because they give me nutrition. 
They give me what I need for life and godliness. Now, when I hear other things that are not according to sound doctrine, I also know that as well. And I, and I, and I pick it up really quick because I know those are not my father's words. And those words, they do not bring me spiritual nourishment. See, that's what we have to recognize as believers, but not only do we have to recognize it, that's what we have to focus on ourselves. What are we proclaiming to others? Number one, what are we learning? Are we learning these wonderful gospel truths? These wonderful, solid doctrines? Are we learning from solid teachers that are preaching the word of God and teaching the word of God? Are we taking that in? Do we recognize that? Do we recognize what is God's word and what is not? You see, we are responsible for that. We are responsible for that. We are responsible to be good learners and teachers of the word. And I hope that we all take that seriously and that we all hold ourselves responsible to that. That we just don't listen to every single person who is out there teaching. And that when we hear something that is not right, not according to sound doctrine, that we are very careful with that. Because once we get a taste of godly teaching, then there is no substitute. We'll yearn for it. And we'll make sure we get it. Second of all, Jesus says, um, he talks about how to recognize godly discipleship. In verses 19 through 24, let me read those to you real quick as well. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answer him, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus says in Verse 21, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. See, the Jews were examples of true hypocrisy here, and this is where we see it. They marveled at his teaching. They recognized how wonderful and glorious it was, but they didn't even live, they didn't even try to live according to it. In fact, when Jesus corrected, when he corrected them, they accused him of having a demon inside of him. So even though they marveled at it and they saw that it was like no other They made no attempt to try to live according to it, nor did they try to live according to their own convictions. You see, that's that's the true essence of a hypocrite. To have convictions or to say you have convictions and then you don't live according to them at all. In fact, there is no attempt to do so. And we see that in verse 19. Jesus' response to them was this. The law prohibits you from murdering, and yet you are trying to kill me. I mean, he, he confronts them 
with what they're actually trying to do. They're sitting there just like us here today. You're sitting here in church, you're listening to God's word. And if there was amen back there, they would have been amening. They marveled at his teaching. So that they sat there and, and, and in some sense of the word, they were in agreement with him and what he was saying. And yet he showed them their, hypocr- their hypocrisy by saying, hey, you, you yourselves, you know that the law prohibits murder. And that's what you base your faith on. That's what you base your, your decisions on and, and, and what you believe on. And yet you are trying to kill me. And then he says, second of all, in verse 23, That the law allows for acts of mercy on the Sabbath, yet you seek to kill me for performing a healing on the Sabbath. What greater act of mercy can you perform than healing? And yet, that's why you're seeking to kill me. And then Jesus goes on in verse 23. He says, at the same time, basically at the same time that you prohibit me from healing on the Sabbath, you think you have the right to perform circumcisions on the Sabbath. So, in essence, you have made an excuse for yourself to work on the Sabbath, but you are condemning me from doing the same type of work because it all fell under God's work. Now, he points these things out to put them on the spot so that they can gain understanding, so that they can know that what they are doing is not right. When Jesus called out their hypocrisy, again, they accused him of having a demon inside of him when we see that in verse 20. Now, that shouldn't surprise any of us because that is exactly how someone would react if they were not concerned about God's will. And that's exactly why Jesus said what he said when he talked about teaching and recognizing godly teaching. That those who are concerned with God's will, they'll recognize godly teaching. Those who are not concerned with his will, they will not recognize it. See, this is the way in which worldly people react to the truth of his word. When the truth of his word speaks about homosexuality, you get this kind of reaction. When it speaks about any kind of sin, I mean, I could sit here and I can name every single sin that is common in the world today, and you get a reaction of, That is not my God. That's not the God I worship. Or you just hate people, or you people are just full of hate, or you are all just hypocrites. That's the reaction that comes from the world. But that should not be the reaction of the Christian. And the reason why is because the Christian, as we said last week, the Christian bows at the word of God. Because the Christian knows that the word of God is the word of his king and his Lord. And that's what we need to think about whenever we are exposed to truth. You know, truth has a way of upsetting us. And again, as we talked about last week, we have a way of being offended by the word of God. But those who are Christians... Yes, they may take offense, but they'll sit there, they'll chew on it, and they'll realize that it is the word of God that is offending them through the power of the Holy Spirit, and it will lead them to repentance. 
When we bow at the word of God, we understand that the word of God brings us wisdom and it leads us to true life, and that is eternal life. So as Christians, we must take the word of God seriously. So it's not only important to learn and to teach, but it's also just as important to be obedient to what we have learned. Because if we take the word of God seriously, then the word molds our hearts and it conforms us into our Savior. We must understand that true godly discipleship models the life of Christ. That's why it's so important for us to watch what we learn and also watch what we do. See, there's purpose behind it. It's not just about doing these things so that we can look good or we can gain praises from those who are around us. That's not it. We must remember that we're doing these things out of an act of worship to God. And these are things that we are commanded to do. And it seems like many people fall into one category or the other, but the fact is, is that we have to have a healthy balance of both. And what I mean about people fall into one category or the other is that it seems like those who have been Christians a long time, it's like they quit learning. They feel like they've learned everything that they could learn. They know, and, and I, I mean this in, in a total respectfully way, but they think that they know everything already because they've been there, done that. But the true fact is, is that the Spirit of God never stops teaching us. It doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian, we've never, we, 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 we don't get to the point when we've arrived until Christ comes back and he glorifies our bodies and our minds. And yet, even at that point, we never stop learning about God. For we're going to learn about God for eternity because that's how wonderful, sovereign, and powerful he is. So you have those people who fall into this category of I've quit learning already and there's really not much more for me to learn. And then you have people who fall into the other category of, well, what I what I do is my my own personal business. And you shouldn't judge me for it. In fact, some are so brave about it and really so naive about it, ignorant about it, that they say only God can judge me. Bible tells us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. So they're not worried about how they're living. Because to them, no one has a right to judge them. No one has a right to call out their sin. No one has a right to even talk to them about it because that is their life and they're following their own personal walk with God. That is not the model of a church. How does that that paint a picture of a Christian being part of the body of Christ? To me, that's the opposite. That's someone who's detached himself from the body of Christ. You see, we are supposed to be there for each other. We're united in Christ. Christ is the head. Our ministries are there to help, encourage, correct, to do all those things. Because if you are a member of a church, that is what church life looks like. I want to remind us of what Paul said, and I'll close with this in 1 Timothy 4.16. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he reminded him 
gave him some great advice, and I think it really applies to us today. 1 Timothy 4.16, this is what Paul tells Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself. That means on your life and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I think that's great. That's a great application for today. Keep a close eye on our life and in our teaching. Translation means keep a close watch on your personal testimony and your doctrine. What you learn and what you teach. I want us to notice how important these two things are. Concerning the Lord bringing people to salvation. You see, we are the guides. A better word for that is we are the vessels of mercy that God uses to bring people to himself. I want us to start there. We don't do the work. We don't do the heavy lifting. We're just vessels. But let's be the best vessel we can be. It's awesome. Many of you, I know there are some people in here who have been on cruises. It's awesome to see how people, the people who work on the boat, how they attend to the boat. Because I'm thinking about vessels, and when I think of the word vessel, I think of a ship. And when these maintenance people on the ship, when they're working nonstop, they're just working on the vessel. They're just working on the ship. They're painting, fixing, things that don't even need to be painted. They're painting over them. They're cleaning. Maintenance 24-7. See, I appreciate that, and I think that's the kind of vessel that we should present before our Lord. That we're always, 24-7, that we're always working on ourselves. We're learning, we're teaching, and we're watching the way we live. I think those are extremely important so that we can present ourselves in the finest shape for our Lord and our Savior to use us as he wills. See, as Christians, we must understand that we are responsible to seek out godly teaching and we are responsible to adhere to it. And we are to do this as an act of worship to our Lord. So, this is the challenge for us today. We must become students of the word and we must be doers of the word. Let's pray. Father, we